Hello there. Welcome to No Extra Words, One Person Search for Story. My name is Chris Baker Dersh, and I'm your producer and editor. This is season two, Book Pairings. I know lots of people who don't spend their lives surrounded by piles of picture books might sometimes wonder why I spend so much time talking about the darn things. It seems like if you're not a kid under eight, or the parent of a kid under eight, picture books might not mean anything to you at all. But it might surprise you to learn that you are actually living in a golden age of picture books. Now, I'm pretty sure when, you, when I say golden age of picture books, your mind immediately goes to the orange room and Goodnight Moon and Max in his wolf suit and where the wild things are, and I can't really blame you. You know, those of you who've been listening along this season have heard me talk several times about Ursula Nordstrom and the sort of evolution children's literature went through in the mid-20th century. And there's a generation of classic children's books that were spawned out of that era. But when it comes to picture books in particular, today's kids and today's grown-ups have a wider selection and better breadth and depth to their choices than they ever had before. And I will say, if you're not experiencing that, you are missing out. Because I tend to nerd out about math, I actually ran the numbers to see if we've been talking about this trend. And I found out that of the 26 books that I featured on the first nine episodes of this season up to this point, seven of them were picture books. That's more than a quarter. And yet, you may or may not agree with me on this, but I would not say the content of this show has been aimed at kids or even necessarily at their parents or their teachers. I mean, one of those books that I'm counting as a picture book was explicitly written for a high school audience and older, and that's A Wreath for Emmett Till from episode 107. I've been getting more active on Goodreads. As I tell you this story, I'm closing in on 100 books over there, which is nothing, but I've only been doing it since January, so I'm feeling good about that. And I have a shelf in my Goodreads account that's explicitly a for-all-ages shelf, and I'm pretty picky about what I put there. Because I don't think a lot of books are for everyone, quote unquote. There's people talk about this to writers a lot. If you're writing for everyone, you're writing for no one. Have some kind of sense of who your audience is. But I have six books on that for all ages shelf because I think there are some books that really are aimed at everyone. And five of those on my shelf are picture books. See, picture books get a bad rap. The idea is you outgrow them. That somehow they're not just for kids, but they're for little kids. I've had kids as young as second grade tell me that they won't read those anymore because they're the baby books. I have mom friends with four-year-olds asking me when their kids will transition from picture books to chapter books. Now, the answer to that, in case you're wondering, is in terms of when will they transition out, like from one to the other, I really hope the answer is never, or at least not for a very long time. Will there be a point where the four-year-old will be more ready for chapter books than she is now? Yes. That's going to vary kid by kid as she finds the books that interest her and as her ability to sit and pay attention expands. But it's the idea of leaving one for the other that bugs me. So picture books get this bad rap. But what's causing the golden age of picture books is this understanding that they're not just for kids or for little kids. It's not necessarily that more books are being written for that younger set, that kind of traditional four to eight-year-old picture book audience that publishers talk about. Four to eight, three to eight, two to eight, depending on the book. 
little ones under the age of two to three usually are, have board books targeted at them. But educators and librarians, the group of people that I sometimes call the book people, are getting better at understanding that this is a genre for everyone and using these with kids of all ages. And publishers are putting out content to meet that demand. Back in February, I went to a children's book unconference and there was a session on how valuable it can be to read a picture book in class every day to high schoolers. I can't tell you how happy that made my heart. Because it's a different experience. You get a story in one sitting. It's very much like a short story in a lot of ways. You don't have to keep coming back to it like you do with a novel. Not that there's anything wrong with reading novels out loud to kids, but it gives you that different experience. It also gives our hypervisual culture that visual experience to pair along with story. Now, picture books are a tough sell to parents. They get concerned that kids are going to outgrow them and they're expensive. So hardcover sales of non-classic picture books that go to individual homes are actually pretty small. So the big market for these books are is the educational market, um, schools and libraries. And that market by itself can create a trend. And that is what we are seeing in picture books right now. And nowhere in the market do you see this more clearly than in the exploding world of picture book biographies, which is what we're going to talk about today. We have touched on this genre before. I shared with you back on episode 108, Audrey Vernick's She Loved Baseball, the Effa Manley story. But I really want to talk more about this genre and how powerful it is, especially when it takes on topics that are not usually written about for children. Some of those lives of people that are too controversial, too complicated, too explicit to write about for children, but people who are still very important. It's Poetry Month right now, and I have been talking with you about how I want to share with you real poets, the kind that can be really intimidating to sit in an English class and study, the kind of poetry that feels like you need a master's degree to read and understand. So the poets covered in the books we're going to talk about today all fall into that category, and those three are Gertrude Stein, William Carlos Williams, and Pablo Neruda. And we're going to get to books that cover all three. But before we do that, I want to talk for just a minute about what the heck is a picture book biography and why is this the way you should be reading about history. So biographies for kids are not a new format. Up until about 25 years ago, most of them were incredibly formulaic. They were either 48 or 64 pages long. That's a standard number. It has to do with the way the books are bound. We used to have this teacher in one of the schools where I was a public librarian who was always telling the kids to get a 50-page biography. And we kept coming back to her and saying, they don't make them that way. <laughs> they don't. It's either 48 or 64. That's how they're published. So these traditional old-school biographies, and they still exist. They're still being published. But they would follow a topic from cradle to grave. They were designed with an educational purpose in mind. If you want to study Abraham Lincoln, you pick up a biography of Abraham Lincoln. You learn about where he was born, what his life was like, all the way through his presidency and his death. You can get adult books like this on Abraham Lincoln, too. But you can also get books that take a very different take on Lincoln's life. The adult market for biographies also has expanded and also has included some nuance. So these formulaic biographies, they weren't badly written. And like I said, they still exist. They're everywhere. Um, but they all had that kind of same style. It was a journalistic, informational style. Wasn't really something you would pick up if you wanted a read aloud or a page turner. There were, of course, always exceptions. 
the Hornbook did a nice piece about five years ago on the evolution of picture book biographies. And they talked about some early titles that broke the mold and did some different things with how famous people were portrayed in kids' lit as far back as the 30s. I will link you that article in the show notes. But for the most part, that format was pretty standard until the 1990s. And I would argue it's not until much more recently than that that it has become a significant chunk of the biography, the overall biography selection. In the 1990s, there was a push in education towards multiculturalism, and that encouraged the telling of stories of great individuals from all backgrounds. And a few authors started doing that in a way that focused on the storytelling, the picture, some of the traditional aspects of children's books, rather than the really completest nature of that earlier generation of biographies for children. One of the early writers to do this was Jonah Winter. Jonah Winter is the son of Jeanette Winter, who's an artist who had a great reputation in picture books. Um, I think she's probably best known for 1988's Follow the Drinking Gourd, which is about the Underground Railroad. Her son, Jonah, was a poet, and she enlisted his help to provide text for a biography she was working on on Diego Rivera. And the result was Diego, which came out in 1991. And it is often pointed to it as one of the early examples of what modern picture book biographies were going to look like. So that goes back to the early 90s, and that's when the trend started to develop. In the mid-2000s, about 10-ish years ago, they were given a boost. Informational picture books as a whole, um, picture book biographies being a subset of that, were given a boost by the implementation of Common Core Standards, which really pushed a balance between informational and literary texts taught in schools. So... I think traditionally in schools, you see a really high representation of literary text and a smaller representation of informational, especially in younger years. And it starts to balance as kids get older. What Common Core encourages is that it encourages more of a balance in early years and then they push towards informational as kids get older. People have a lot of opinions about Common Core. But however you feel about Common Core, the truth is that good picture book biographies are both. They are literary and informational. They are wonderful, rich storytelling that is based on fact. And in some ways, it's a pretty false dichotomy to set up that you have either literary or informational texts. We are living in a great age of nonfiction on the adult side of publishing and there's been a big move towards a lot of nonfiction reading, a lot of very readable, very sellable nonfiction writing. I hear all the time from people, oh, I don't read. And what they actually mean is I don't read novels. What they actually mean is I prefer memoir, or I prefer biography, or I prefer spiritual, or I prefer history. Um, and there's this perception that reading those for fun is somehow less than than reading fiction, which is ridiculous. There's a lot of rich, literary, wonderful nonfiction out there. And to continue this push towards more and better nonfiction in children's writing, in 2001, the Association for Library Service to Children, which is the people that gives out the Newbery and Caldecott Awards, started also awarding the Seibert Medal for Informational Books for Children. A quick look at the Cybert Medals awarded through the years will show a lot of picture book biographies in this particular category. So there's been more of an acceptance of informational books for children being literary, being something you might pick up for fun, being something you might pick up for a read aloud, 
you know, in the old days, kids would read nonfiction when they were assigned to read nonfiction. And now there's a push to nonfiction being fun. And the the truth is, kids are like adults. You know, when I talk about adults who say they quote unquote don't read, which means they like nonfiction, there are kids like that too. There are kids who really gravitate towards true stories and aren't super interested in a novel. So the breadth of what we're seeing being covered for children has gotten better, which is great. So that's a short history of picture book biographies, where they came from. But what exactly are they, and why are they different than just your standard biography? For one thing, they're shorter. They're usually 32 or 48 pages, and they include much more picture... The the picture-to-text ratio is different. So in a traditional informational biography text, your picture-to-text ratio is going to really heavily favor the text side. In picture book biography, there's more of a balance. Which means you don't have time in a lot of these to do that cradle-to-grave, all-inclusive format. Authors often have to pick and choose a specific focus. That might be a certain aspect of someone's life, like a relationship with music or art, a specific time period, like just talking about their childhood or just talking about the invention that they made and where it came from. These are shorter stories than long-form biographies. They can also cover all the range that picture books can. They can be told in verse or in rhyme. They can imitate the way a subject writes or speaks. They can be wordless. They can be a lot of things. But they need to be well-researched. You can't just make one up. They need to be grounded in fact. So even if there's not a lot of pith in them, the writers need to know their stuff. And back matter can be really, really important. That's the place where you let your young readers know pieces that you've left out, other places to go. It's a good place for timelines, author's notes, things like that. But the best picture book biographies on the sort of spectrum between picture book and old school informational text are going to be much more heavily towards the picture book side in style. There are certainly longer ones, but what you're seeing are the ones that can be read aloud in a fairly short period of time, one setting reads that grab their audience with story, both written and visual, and can spark interest in wider reading on their subjects. That's very much what good informational picture books do. We mentioned Jonah Winter, one of the early pioneers in this form. The list of people that he has covered in his picture book biographies is diverse. Frida Kahlo, Casey Stengel, Barack Obama, Sonia Sotomayor, and in 2009, Gertrude Stein. Gertrude is Gertrude is Gertrude is Gertrude is the only biography of Gertrude Stein for kids that I have ever seen. And there is a reason for that. So depending on who you ask, Gertrude Stein is either an icon of modern art and poetry or a hack whose drivel isn't worth reading. Either way, it's not easy stuff to read. Google how to read Gertrude Stein and you will find entire books written on the subject of how to get through Gertrude Stein's poetry. There's a course syllabus from Boston University that's a great example of this. I'll put it in the show notes. A great example of how complex analyzing this woman's writing is. It's hard to do a quick biography of Gertrude Stein. And I'm not Jonah Winter, so it's not my specialty. But the short version of her life is that she was a writer, an artist, and an art collector. She was born in America, but she spent a large portion of her adult life living in Paris. And she would host gatherings in her home of some of the most well-known modern artists, including Hemingway, Picasso, Matisse, 
people who were involved in modern art hung out at Gertrude Stein's house. When she was a young woman, she studied under the psychologist William James, whose experiments with what I think we would now call multitasking, trying to get the brain to do two things at once, yielded stream-of-consciousness writing. And that would be a style that Stein used extensively in her writing. So again, depending on who you ask, her poems are playful, or nonsensical, or a criticism of patriarchal language, or some combination or something else entirely. She was a very controversial figure. She wrote what is often called the first coming out story. And she wrote extensively on lesbian relationships. Her best known book is probably the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas from 1932, which is a sort of a memoir of her life in Paris. That's told through the voice of her partner, Alice B. Toklas. I don't know if I'm saying that right. If you've heard of her, you probably know she has a couple of off-quoted lines. One of them is, Rose is Rose is a Rose is a Rose, from a 1913 poem entitled Sacred Emily. And from there, we get the title, Gertrude is Gertrude is Gertrude is Gertrude. And that is the topic that unfortunate Jonah Winter has found for himself in this book. The completely indescribable, totally controversial, and one might even say mysterious, Gertrude Stein. So Winter solves this problem of how to present this character to younger readers by writing the story of Gertrude Stein, as she might, in a stream-of-consciousness verse. He outlines her life. Everything's there. The writing, the art, the relationship with Alice, but it is sparsely told and pays homage to her in the way that only a poem of this sort could. Now, Jonah Winter, as I mentioned, is himself a poet, He's best known for his picture book biography, but the other thing he works in is poetry for adults. And he has said that this makes picture book writing an ideal format for him, because picture books, like poetry, demand a lot from very few words. I think Gertrude Stein herself would really appreciate Jonah Winter's take on writing. I should say as an aside, not everything Gertrude Stein wrote is stream of consciousness. She has short stories and novels that are more coherent, that follow a more typical sentence and paragraph structure. But nothing... Everything's experimental. Nothing Gertrude Stein wrote ever sounded quote-unquote normal or typical. That's just not her. So what I would do oftentimes in a school setting with this book is to read it to the kids without warning. Just let them hear it. And then go back to the original. So I would read them this book, let them kind of take it in for a minute, and then read them some stanzas of Sacred Emily. So they could get a sense of the woman being described. And a lot of them would hate it, just like a lot of people hate Gertrude Stein. And a lot would ask me why she wrote that way. It doesn't make any sense. I don't understand it. I don't like it. But a couple, there's always a couple of kids, would find it interesting. And that is the power of Gertrude Stein. And I think that is the power of a lot of these poets that have staying power. It's not that everybody likes them. It's that they're interesting enough that they inspire passion in some people. If you're not one of them, then you get to pick up another poet. It's okay. Gertrude Stein doesn't reach everyone, but those she reaches dig it. I had a third grader once tell me that to get it, he had to, st this is his way of putting it. I had to stop trying to listen to what she was saying and just let the words flow over me. Those were his words. A third grader. Which is why I don't listen when people tell me kids can't quote unquote get it. So, I'm going to treat you like my eight-year-olds. Before we move on, there are a couple of wonderful books I want to share with you today. But it is Poetry Month, 
And courtesy of Gertrude Stein and the public domain, I want to take just a minute and read you not all of it because it's long, but an excerpt from Sacred Emily written in 1930. Compose, compose beds. Wives of great men rest tranquil. Come, go stay, Philip, Philip. Egg be takers. Parts of place nuts. Suppose twenty for cent. It is rose in hen. Come one day, a firm terrible, a firm terrible hindering, a firm hindering, have a ray, nor pin, nor. Egg in places, egg in few insists. In set a place, I am not missing. Who is a permit? I love, honor, and obey. I do love, honor, and obey. I do. Melancholy do lip sing. How old is he? Murmur, pet murmur, pet murmur. Push see, 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 push see. Sweet and good and kind to all. Wearing head. Cousin tip nicely. Cousin tip nicely. Wearing head. Leave us sit. I do believe it will finish. I do believe it will finish. Pat ten patent. Pat ten patent. Eleven and eighteen. Foolish is foolish is. Birds measure, birds measure stores. Birds measure stores, measure birds, measure. Exceptional firm bites. How do you? I forgive you everything, and there is nothing to forgive. Nevertheless, leave it to me. Weeds without papers. Weeds without papers are necessary. Left again, left again. Exceptional considerations. Nevertheless, tenderness. Resting cow curtain. Resting bull pin. Resting cow curtain. Resting bull pin. Next to a frame. The only hat hair. Leave us, mass, leave us. Leave us, pass, leave us. Leave us, pass, leave us. Humming is. No climate. What is a size? Ease all I can do. Colored frame, couple of canning. Ease all I can do. Humming does as humming does as humming is. What is a size? No climate. Ease all I can do. Shall give it, please to give it. Like to give it, please to give it. What a surprise. No sooner weather. Cordially yours. Pause. Cordially yours. No, not sooner together. Cordially yours. Instruing, instruing. That is the way we are one and indivisible. Pay nuts renounce. Now, without turning around, I will give them to you tonight. Cunning is and does. Cunning is and does. The most beautiful notes. I would like a thousand most most. Center pricking petunia. Electrics are tight. Electrics are white. Electrics are a button. Singular pressing. Recent thimble. Noisy pearls. Noisy pearl coat. Arrange. Arrange wide opposite. Opposite it. Lily ice cream. Nevertheless, a hand is Willie. Henry. 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 A hand is Henry. 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 A hand is Willie. Henry. 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 All the time. A waiting chest. Do you mind? Lizzie, do you mind? Ethel. 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 Next to Barber, next to Barber Berry, next to Barber Berry China, next to Barber Berry China Glass, next to Barber China and Glass, next to Barber and China, next to Barber and Hurry, next to Hurry, next to Hurry and Glass and China, next to Hurry and Glass and Hurry, next to Hurry and Hurry, next to Hurry and Hurry. Plain cases for C. Tickle, tickle, tickle you for education. A very reasonable berry. Suppose a selection were reverse. Cousin to sadden. A coral neck and a little song. So very extra, so very Susie. Cow, come out, cow, come out, and out, and smell a little. 
Draw prettily, next to a bloom, neat stretch, paste plenty, cauliflower, cauliflower, curtain cousin, apron, neither best set. Do I make faces like that at you? Pinky, not writing, not writing another, another one, think. Jack Rose, Jack Rose. So having let you experience that, we move on to the writing of William Carlos Williams. William Carlos Williams is a poet I really like without being able to tell you why. When I talk about people, this is my true confession. When I talk about people who don't have a master's degree in English feeling left out of conversations about poetry, I'm really talking about myself. I don't have a master's degree in English. I don't have a degree in English at all. Poetry isn't something that I personally have extensively studied. I read a few poems in lit classes in college, but the truth is I actually came to like it more after leaving college when I was reading it and discovering it on my own. And I discovered William Carlos Williams a number of years ago on my own by looking at some things, some things he wrote, and they just struck me. Until I started reading about Williams to prepare for this episode... I didn't know that he was considered a big part of the imagism movement of the early 20th century. I didn't know that imagism valued direct presentation and economy of language. And I didn't know that Williams was a big influence on beat poets like Allen Ginsberg. All I really know is that I liked what he had to say and how he said it. Williams falls into that category where most of his early stuff is in the public domain and his later stuff is not. And I don't really want to share with you most of the poems that I found that I can share because to me, they don't really sound like him. They sound like what they are. A young, early on self-published poet still trying to find his voice. His earlier work is an imitation of those who came before him. It has this flowery language. It has these rhyme schemes. It took him time to discover the sparse form he's best known for. So most of what I feel is iconic Williams, I can't read to you. The good news is that if you open up the front cover of A River of Words by Jen Bryant, there are five poems in the front of there, including the two he's best known for, which are two of my favorites, The Red Wheelbarrow and This Is Just to Say. So if you get your hands on this book and read the first five poems, you'll get a really good sense of Williams. Those poems, many of you have heard them, I'm sure you have. They are often used in the classroom. They're really easy to imitate and to spoof. They're not unknown by any stretch. A River of Words is a Caldecott honor for illustration, and it is really easy to just get lost in the illustrations in this book. I highly recommend reading illustrator Melissa Sweet's illustrator notes from the back of the book, because she talks about her research process and how she drew in the modern art of William's time. She also discusses how she was inadvertently introduced to the work of Williams while on a brownie troop field trip when she was seven years old. This book is so full visually of snippets and slices and corners, much like William's life was. Williams was a practicing physician. He wrote in his spare time. He wrote on the corners of prescription pads. He was not a well-known poet in his lifetime, and he was that was never his primary occupation. I think in a lot of ways, William's story can be really inspirational to today's writers because he really was a, you know... A year ago now, I talked to Catherine Grubb of the 10 Minute Novelists. William Carlos Williams was a right when you have a few minutes kind of a guy. And that is how he created this body of work he's left behind for us. 
Jen Bryant's text is more straightforward and less stylistic than Jonah Winter's, and her storytelling angle is much more traditional biography. She really does go cradle to grave on him, much more than a lot of other picture book biographies. But while her language is more straightforward, a lot like William's, her style is still of the sort that he would appreciate. She puts in the line breaks, the simple structure, the short lines. She emphasizes his evolution with language, how he first started playing with it in the forms he knew, and eventually that frustrated him and he started writing about everyday things, things he knew well and could see, and stopped trying to make his writing conform to a rhyme scheme. The focus of this book, in both words and pictures, is that act of playing with language. As a poet... One of the tools you have is the way the words look on a page. Really, only the nerdiest among us care how prose looks on a page. But for poets, how words are laid out is one of the tools they have. So I like when picture books about poets include words as part of the illustrations. Melissa Sweet does this with great effectiveness in A River of Words, and it's a technique Julie Paskis also employs in Pablo Neruda, Poet of the People, which is by Monica Brown. Brian's book is called A River of Words, but the front cover of the Pablo Neruda book is a literal river of words coming from young poet Neftali's fingertips. Now, I discovered Gertrude Stein and William Carlos Williams' poetry first, and then read about them in books for children. But Pablo Neruda is a poet who came to me directly through a children's book. It's not this one. It's Pam Munoz Ryan's The Dreamer from 2010, which is a novelization of the poet's young life for middle-grade readers. It's stylistically inspired by Neruda's The Book of Questions from 1974. The Dreamer. What can I say about The Dreamer? It's not a biography. It doesn't really fit in this episode. It's a novel. It is illustrated by the wonderful Peter Cease. It's written in green ink, which I think is a lovely touch. Um, Neruda always wrote in green ink and had this special relationship with nature. But The Dreamer, for all I love it, I have mixed feelings about it because I think... Remember earlier when I talked about how not every book is written for everybody? I think The Dreamer somehow misses its target audience. Much as I love... Pam Munoz Ryan. I think you should go get as many things by her as you possibly can. Um, she's a wonderful writer. Um, Becoming Naomi Leone is probably my favorite by her, but she's got wonderful books. But I think... I don't think we should dumb down books for children. And I've said this before. But I think finding the middle grade student who really dives deep into the dreamer is a tough challenge. I think it misses its mark just a little bit. For as much as I love it, it has that problem. And it definitely drove me to pick up the book of questions and to read it, which I think you should. It, it, there's a fairly recent, within the last 20 years, translation of it that includes the original Spanish as well. Um, that's a great way to see it. Um, there's When I wrote my review of the book for Goodreads, I think I said, there's nothing more poetic than an unanswerable question, which is what the book of questions is. So... The Dreamer caused me to go find more about Neruda, but it also caused me to need a different way to expose young readers to him. And for me, the answer to that problem was Monica Brown's picture book biography of him. Neruda's life is another one that's really, really hard to tell to children. He was a communist. He was a diplomat. He was an activist. And he was also a poet probably should start with poet. He was poet first, but he was all those things. I'm not sure my South American history is good enough for me to truly understand 
the life and impact of Pablo Neruda, much less to explain it to a seven-year-old contemporary English language reader like this book is trying to do. And does well. Because the focus of this book is not on politics. It's not on creating that narrative of his whole life. Again, it doesn't do cradle to grave. It doesn't force you to take in every corner of his life to try to explain every detail. The focus of this book is Neruda as a child, as the lover of nature, about writing about things that mean the most to him. Again, like with William Carlos Williams, writing about things he could see and touch and understand and experience, the everyday things of his world, of the natural world that meant so much to him, and how his caring for and obsessing about the natural world transitioned to caring for the circumstances of the people in his world. And that is how she introduces us to his politics. Is through that poet's eye when he sees things and wants to help. And you see his passion for his home country. And you see his passion for his neighbors. And that is how she tells the story of his life in a way that makes sense to kids. But doesn't talk down to them. We don't get into the weeds of history on this book, but you get a very real sense of this person who lived many places and was many things. He was a fugitive. You, you see that in this book. And you have an understanding of what his world is without having to go way deeper into South American history than I think a lot of us really can or want to even. And on every page, there are these whirls and swirls of words written in suns and moons and on streams and on railroad tracks, words in English and Spanish. This is how great the visual experience of this book is. As I was leafing through it, writing notes so I could describe it to you all, the almost four-year-old took it out of my hand and wanted me to read it to him. It isn't too sophisticated for him, and yet it manages to not dumb down the life of this poet for its sort of intended audience, which is that elementary school and... What these books have in common, at the end of the day, is that they are stories of writers who played with language in their own way, who decided to do different things with words on a page than what had been done before them. And each in their own way, these books let young readers in on the life and times of those who wrote those words, in a way that invites these young readers to their own flights of imagination and fancy of wordplay. I used to say during Poetry Month, well, I'm going to teach the eight-year-olds about... Gertrude Stein, William Carlos Williams, and Pablo Neruda. And I got some pretty strange looks. But that's what picture book biography does, is it opens the world of almost anyone from history up to kids of all ages and helps them to understand and appreciate in a way that I am truly grateful for. I think this is an awesome way to learn and teach history. I really hope you enjoyed this book pairing. If you have a poetry lover or better yet, a poetry hater in your life who would benefit from this discussion, I hope you'll consider sharing this episode, Sacred Emily and all. For more book pairings, you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, or just Google us from your Android device and you can pin us right to your home screen. It's pretty cool. For show notes and more information, you can visit noextrawords.wordpress.com. We're also at Noah Extra Words on Instagram and Twitter. Um, 
I put all kinds of things on Instagram and Twitter. If you've been following, you've seen that I am recording to you live from my newly reorganized office. I can actually see the whole room now. There's not piles of stuff in front of me, and all of the typewriters have found their home. Yes, I am that big of a nerd. I'm always looking for friends at goodreads.com slash no extra words. I will put as much as I can. I will put reviews of everything that I talk about on the show, including the books that are not kind of the main features, just so you can see my opinion. You get kind of a backstage pass into my literary life over there. As I said last episode, not committing to a regular publishing schedule, but I do have a plan for the next episode, which I'm hoping will be out sometime in early May. We are celebrating the birthday of the about-to-be-four-year-old this week. So in honor of that, we are going to celebrate being a little boy. And we're going to pair up Ezra Jack Keats's The Snowy Day from 1962 with the book that was written as a thank you to it. And that's a poem for Peter by Andrea Davis Pinkney from 2016. As always, reading along with us is never required. But if you want to this time, once again, you have some pretty short books to work with. At the end of May, we're going to celebrate the third anniversary of this show. We've been going strong since May 29th, 2015. And I do have kind of a plan for a little series we're going to launch into to celebrate that anniversary. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening. And until I see you next time, why don't you go out and find yourself a good story?